Welcome to The Fabric Podcast. As we dig into this dangerous book, the Bible. Yes, it's been dangerous in all the wrong ways over the years, but maybe, just maybe, it might be dangerous in a rich, challenging, hopeful kind of way in each of our lives too. Melissa Locke. Welcome. Welcome to our continuing open-eyed look at this book. This book we're calling a quite dangerous book, The Bible. Um, I don't know how you feel about this book. If you have one in your house, if you even know where it is, or if you pick it up pretty frequently, we're all in different places with that. And we've been talking about it um, as this dangerous book in, in these two different senses of danger, right? So there's the first one that is all too easy to see. People take this book and use it to say what they want it to say, right? To coerce, to change other people, to, to hurt other people, and in order to further their own will or, or our own will, frankly. But the second kind of dangerous, and the one that we strive to be about, is um, one that challenges that willfulness on our part and really is more of a willingness. It helps us look at what is it that we've let separate us from what's possible in life and from what we're a part of. It can remind us of who we are and what we're connected to. So that's the kind of danger we want to embrace if we can and be open to. In that spirit, um, one of the, the threads all along in this book is the spirit. And um, as fabric, we talk about these three strands of, of life that we're weaving together. Ourself, and see mine is a little frayed right now, um, and others, so ourself with others. And with this third strand, we'll call it the God strand, right? This God strand sometimes gets described in all kinds of different ways. One of them is spirit. If the, um, some of you grew up in church and you might have heard about like the Trinity and this doctrine about how this strand can be divided into three parts, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. There's a lot there, but we're not going to spend time trying to understand or explain the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a good way to put us all asleep, so I'm hoping not to do that. Um, and also, isn't that one of the ways that we kind of take the life out of this book? as we try to contain it and find the perfect way to explain it. And we're going to tell everyone else that that's the right way to understand God. And if you don't, well, you just don't get it. It kind of divides the world up into people who get it and the people who don't, people on my side, the people on the other side. And that's not what this book is meant to do. It's supposed to weave us deeply together. In fact, we see that from the very beginning, this, this spirit of God, the first uh, chapter of the Bible is hovering over the void. And it's, um, ruach is the word for, for spirit. It's also the word for wind and breath. And it says the ruach of God, who was called Yahweh, which if I spoke Hebrew better, my understanding is it is more of almost like you have to breathe that word more than pronounce it. It's kind of hard to just say. So the Ruach of Yahweh, like the wind or the spirit of the breath, hovered. Then people come into existence, and that same Yahweh breathes 
into the nostrils of the human that God had just made. And Adam comes to life. Okay? So the spirit is there from the very beginning, getting all wrapped up with reality. And life is coming alive. And it was good. Also, it started to get really messy really soon. All this life that people and creatures and water and wind was imbued with started interacting and stuff started happening, and then the story begins, right? It was a little dangerous on God's part, and yet God let that power flow and keeps doing it, kept doing it all through this book. So that's what we're going to look at today. Through the Bible, this word spirit um, has a lot of different ways of being described. Uh, Rushing tides and flowing rivers, a descending dove, fire. It's closely associated with the word, word. That's interesting as we go here. And also with wisdom. Last week, Greg gave it a new name, superhero juice. I like that. Um, Spirit is the name for this power and vitality that's forming the world, animating us, animating matter, for this creative force that's, that's unleashed and moving all around us. Did you feel the wind this morning? It's life. Life is moving. How can we understand this spirit? One way we can understand it that has a lot of power, I think, is the spirit is that which weaves life. And I want to name the obvious that it's pretty wonderful here in this wild and living world. I mean, think of the wonderful wonder rust. I mean, truly full of wonder things we get to be part of and witness. It's also kind of dangerous. My folks last week just described their neighbor got hospitalized, bit by a rattlesnake reaching into her flower pot. I mean, this world is wild and there's danger, right? And that power, that wondrous, that dangerous power, it's not just out there or back there. It's inside us. It is both out there and in here, and it's wondrous and it's dangerous. Some of the oldest words in the Hebrew Bible put it this way. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, Choose life. The Bible shows us people wrestling with that choice, wrestling with what to do with their freedom and power, misusing it, forgetting they have it, forgetting what it was for, and that it wasn't like theirs from the very beginning. Like, this came from somewhere. They didn't just uniquely deserve it because they were so particularly special. (sighs) Sound familiar? Can you relate to any of that? Ever felt a little stuck lately? A little helpless, a little powerless, a little trapped? Or maybe you've noticed someone overstepping their bounds, misusing a little power here and there in the world, close to home, out there in the news. Um, Maybe you've said words that were powerful that either hurt or healed. So the Bible shows us all of these things, um, these very messy, peoply, human, and heroic figures like us who are 
both misusing this power but also weaving life with it. They find themselves a part of something bigger with this, this creative force, this spirit that is moving in and through them. Think of that word inspiration, inspire, breathe in, breathing life that, that we get to be part of. Someone inspires us, we inspire others. We say a word that encourages them. So we have this power in and around us to weave life in these wondrous and sometimes wondrously dangerous life-giving ways. So why are we often plain just dangerous? If it was easy and automatic to recognize this power that we have all the time and use it really well, we wouldn't need to be talking about it here, and it wouldn't be the theme that goes through this book. Because it's hard. So we're going to look at what is it like to to live, to really live with this, this spirit, this power that we have been generously given and trusted with for some crazy reason. So one of Israel's great prophets was named Ezekiel, and he shared a pretty fantastic story, like fantastical story, lots of crazy imagery in all of his, his visions that he shared um, to give us an idea of what this looks like. So just a bit about Ezekiel and how he fits into the, to the bigger story of the Bible. He was one of 16 prophets in the Old Testament, Um, And he was called one of the major prophets, along with Jeremiah and Isaiah. And I think I heard that's because they had the most to say in their words, took up the biggest scrolls, so the major prophets. They had the most words. Um, All of the prophets had a job of reminding the people of Israel of their role in this covenant or this partnership with God um, to become a nation that would represent the nature of Yahweh to the world, a nation of justice and generosity. That was the role of the prophets, to remind them of that. Today, sometimes we hear prophet used more on the lines of like crystal ball, right? Predicting the future. Um, In fact, the biblical prophets weren't really about predicting the future. They were really about the moment right now. They talked about what the future could be like, But they insisted that what we do now creates that future. This is big. Um, Father Richard Rohr describes it this way. The prophet opens up human freedom by daring to tell Israel and us today that they can change history by changing themselves. Whoa. (laughs) So does how I shape my life now how we shape our lives together now has something to do with shaping the future. We have this freedom and this power, and it's up to us, up to, us to decide what kind of dangerous is it going to be. Is it going to be dangerous to life itself? Or is it going to be dangerous to the injustice and the separation and the fraying that comes along with those simplistic and self-interested views that are so easy to to start to act upon. So prophets can be a little difficult. Um, One of Ezekiel's contemporaries was Jeremiah, and he was thrown in jail because he was making the people so uncomfortable. (laughs) The leaders were like, we just need a little order. Can you just not make the people upset? Stop saying those things. 
So there were professional prophets that would say something more palatable, right? But the voices that have emerged and been passed down um, generation after generation to us today didn't exist to keep Israel in their comfort zones. Um, they, they were called the great troublers of Israel. So not only were they, they were the troublers of Israel, but then they also became the greatest comforters of Israel too, and of many of us since then. A way to sum it up um, that you've probably heard something similar to this is their job was to trouble the comfortable and comfort the troubled. So the story I want to share comes from the troubling and comforting voice of Ezekiel. The first week, Greg um, gave us a tip to, to not confuse the vehicle from the cargo in the Bible. So the, the cargo is the message that is trying to be shared, the message we might be getting when we let our lives be in dialogue with this book. And the vehicle is what carries that message. So the Bible has tons of vehicles, right? It has poems and songs and family trees and histories and uh, parables and metaphors. And it also has these fantastic crazy visions from Ezekiel. Let me tell you a little bit more about the story. Ezekiel shared it at a time when Israel could no longer deny the deep trouble they were in. So their days of greatness as a nation were just gone. They were divided and scattered and under siege. And now um, in the ultimate loss, this place that they had deemed the center of their faith that gave them identity and hope, it, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed to rubble, down to nothing. So there was absolutely no reason to hope. They were basically lost. They were not a people anymore. Um, they were nothing. They were empty. They were dead. This was a moment of deep, deep despair. And then here comes Ezekiel. So settle in now, and I'm going to read you these words that have been preserved and passed down for generations. Now let, I would like to invite you to let the words take um, your imagination on a ride, a ride into the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord came upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, God, only you know. So God asks Ezekiel, what do you think? Look at these bones. Is, is there any hope here? Ezekiel says, oh, <laughs> looks pretty bad. Looks pretty bad to me. So what are some of those places for you where you look and you're like, wow, this is bad? It might be global things. It might be personal things. What are those dead places where we wonder if there can be any hope of life? Did you ever hear hints of a question? Hey, mortal, could there be any life in here? Can we make anything of this? Is there any hope? Do you ever find yourself saying, 
I don't know. I'm not the one to answer that question. Yeah, okay, moving on. Then God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Prophesy to these bones. Prophesy, that means speak what is really here and speak the future. Prophesy, speak the future, Ezekiel. Tell the bones what I will do and who I am, God says. Tell them, I will put breath in them. I will help them come to life. They will live and they will know me. They will know who I really am in their lives. Generous, loving, potent, with you. Are you willing to speak the future to these hopeless situations? What is that like? I mean, there's so many examples when you start listening for it. I heard Ilhan Omar talking about Sudan this week on the news, and she just said it's so important to stay hopeful, to be a voice of hope. And the next day I heard about a Sudanese doctor who risked his life making house calls and to keep up his training of new doctors in Sudan, to keep the hope, to speak the word of hope. He died speaking life into despair and hopelessness. Oof. Are you willing to look at a seemingly impossible situation and speak a word of hope? It's okay. We can do this together. I'm here. Easy, honey, you got this. One step at a time. What if? I wonder. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. I get the sense this is a process. It doesn't happen all at once. Feel it unfolding. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds. Come, breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as God commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude. Prophesy to the breath. Speak the future, even to God's own spirit. Ask God's spirit to bring life. God doesn't just do it, right? I, what would have happened if Ezekiel didn't ask? Somehow it seems we get to participate. Maybe we're needed to participate and realize 
this weaving back to life that's possible. Then God said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off completely. So prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Oh, my people, I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves. Oh, my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. So this was Israel representing God's dream for the world, for how this fabric can really work, this original like hope and dream that seems to be embedded in the way the world is woven together, the way things work. God is saying to them and to us, I know it seems hopeless. I wish it wasn't like this for you. But no, there are no circumstances, none out of which life cannot be woven. And you are part of the weaving. There's nothing, nothing, nothing too far gone for life to be spoken and breathed into it. Speak life. Breathe in my life and breathe it back out to the world. That sounds good. Sounds good, doesn't it? We can do this. <sighs> or can we? Ugh, sorry. It is really easy to give up on this idea, to forget, right? To forget what we can do, what we're a part of, what's possible, and to not see it. Besides, we're, we're told constantly that we should almost settle for the dry bones version of life, right? I mean, we want things that are calm and orderly and still and predictable and clean. So the dead bones, they kind of fit the bill, really. Like they're not going to surprise us with anything, not going to pull us out of our comfort zone. We know exactly where we stand with these bones. But we know we don't really want this right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like, we don't want a statue of a cat or a dog. We want a real one, even though the real ones poop and pee all over and are inconvenient and wake us up at the wrong time. But they're alive, right? They're alive with us. All right. So this spirit is always there to breathe, breathe life. But it is easy to give up on it and make it all about us and our convenience and our agenda. It's hard when you can't see how it could work or when you can, um, like, how, how you can handle it, right? It just feels too out of control. And that is what it's like according to this story. Like Ezekiel, we feel unsure. You feel unsure and you take a step anyway. Ezekiel didn't know if the bones could live. It wasn't until he followed the directions and he could see then, once he took that step, then he could see what was possible. So often we want to know for sure before we take a step of hope, right? We want to know now, 
Like, well, is this going to be worth it? Is this going to be worth the risk? Is this really going to pay off? Are they going to do their part? Are other, you know, what's going to happen? But it is in taking the steps that it seems we discover the hope. We don't have the hope and then take the steps. All right, so let's skip ahead to another story. This one's in one of the four different accounts of Jesus' life now. And it's from John. And in there we meet a guy named Nicodemus. And John was the only one of those four writers that mentioned Nicodemus at all. And he mentions him three times. So here's the first time we meet Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. All right, so what's that all about? So Nicodemus had a lot of status. He knew the, the Torah and all the teachings, and he was you know, a powerful person in the community. And he had seen the masses getting really excited about Jesus. And actually, part of him seemed maybe curious or at least concerned. I don't know what brought him there. But he came to Jesus in the night secretly, assuming it would have been dangerous for anybody to know that this powerful Jewish leader was meeting with this upstart, crazy teacher that's been rabble-rousing. So he cautiously comes in the night, and he admits to Jesus that he's curious. He says, We know that anyone who can do these things that you're doing must come from God. Right? It's kind of that same Ezekiel moment. I don't know. Are you from God or not? Who are you? And Jesus said, Yes. And no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Huh? Nicodemus is confused. He's like, what? Born from, how can you be born again? I'm like, already was, he starts to talk about coming out of his mother's womb, and it's just like, he's missing it. So Jesus says, don't be astonished that I said to you, you must be, be born from above. And listen to this. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. You get a niggling, you get this hunch, but you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. It's wild. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus and Nicodemus had to be thinking of this story from the dry bones. You hear its sound, the rustling in the leaves, the rattling on the dry ground, life. This was the beginning maybe, of Nicodemus's coming alive, even though maybe he didn't know it. He was confused. He didn't fully understand or believe Jesus, but it seems like Jesus understood and believed in Nicodemus. He knew he was beginning a journey. He challenged Nicodemus and turned his eyes towards something bigger, more out of control, and more powerful than what Nicodemus had been living with. And the bones began to come together, bone to bone, and flesh began to appear on them. Okay, then the second time we meet Nicodemus, it's no longer in the night, being a little more public, and he's with his colleagues who are gathered trying to plot a way to get rid of Jesus because he's causing too much trouble. And Nicodemus speaks up. He's like... Um, we can't just accuse Jesus. Doesn't our law say that we can't decide about a man's guilt without first listening to him and finding out what he's doing? 
Well, his colleagues cut him off, and they're like, oh, are you also campaigning for this Galilean? So they kind of tease him. He took a risk, and he felt it. It is risky when we're willing to kind of look at the limits of systems that we've been comfortable with, right? That we've gotten used to, and maybe they worked at one time, but they're not working anymore. Nicodemus had this hunch that there needed to be more life. Something else could be possible. But he wasn't quite sure yet. So what are those places in our lives? They worked just fine before for me, but gosh, maybe they're not working anymore. Maybe something could change. Maybe something could be different. Are you and I willing to look at that? Are we willing to speak up for the possibility of change even when we don't really know how it could work or what the answers are? The third and last time that we hear about Nicodemus is when Jesus had been crucified. His body was being taken off the cross. And it says, Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night in secret, Nicodemus also came. And they took the body of Jesus, and they wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. According to the custom. So Nicodemus took what he knew as a good Jew, as a teacher, his own tradition, and he also took his opened heart his heart that knew there's more, there's something going on here. And he risked both of them to be part of this, to be part of this life he was coming to know that he was experiencing and seeing in this man, Jesus. And Nicodemus didn't hold back. It says he brought enough myrrh and aloe, um, which apparently were very valuable and expensive, in these unnecessary amounts that would have typically been only reserved for the most royal people. As he looked at this body, inside, something was different for Nicodemus. He had new eyes, maybe eyes from above, and there was no going back for him. He had experienced something deep down inside, and it was now showing up on the outside. So we never hear of Nicodemus again. So last we see, he's sitting there wrapping Jesus' body in linens. You might remember, I don't know, the first week Greg actually mentioned Nicodemus as he talked about these tools for reading the Bible and how sometimes it's these small details that can carry a bigger message and we should pay attention to them and one of them is numbers. In, in, um, in the Jewish tradition, the number three is a sacred, the sacred number signifying completeness and stability and wholeness. So think about that. Nicodemus let go of what he knew and what thought made him find stability and entered into this process, to this relationship, to this messy, dynamic, moving, spirited, scary relationship. And that's where he was finding his wholeness and his stability even in that dry bones moment of wrapping up Jesus' body, something inside him told him there was still hope. Maybe this was what the old prophets had been talking about. Nicodemus must have thought. 
Jeremiah had said, I will put the law within them, and I will write it on their hearts inside them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It sounds like weaving, not on our own, but with, together. Another prophet that would have been in Ezekiel's mind um, could have been Hosea, who said, God desires love that lasts, not sacrifice. God desires mercy, not more religion. This word for love or mercy, um, I read about it as hesed, and it means an inner loyalty that's motivated not from the outside. It comes right because of the relationship. You've been loved, and so you love. It's never forced. It comes from a process, a patient, gentle, inside-out process. And this is the way God seems to love, the way we can come to love. It's hard, it's scary, it's risky, inconvenient, beyond our control most of the time. The wind blows much bigger than what we can handle on our own. But we sense it's worth following anyway, so we, we do. We take steps. Like Nicodemus, um, we hardly know if we're doing it or not. He wondered, would this be worth the risk to his position, to his status, to the, the things he had held dear before? Or maybe it's like Peter, who Greg told us about last week, who uh, was invited by Jesus and boldly said, yeah, I'll walk on the water and come see you. But then the wind and the waves and the wildness starts, and he starts to doubt. Like, oh, am I really on my own? I think I might be sinking. I think I might drown. And we are reminded of this refrain that keeps coming back to 365 times in this book, and now three weeks in a row here, do not be afraid. I am with you. So an image this reminds me of is I was a swimming teacher, and I remember I'd get like this, most scared little kids often came to my class, and they had either had like a bad experience with the water, and never wanted to go back, or they had always been told to be afraid of the water and had like the water wings or the life jackets, or they'd just never been in it before. So lots of reasons, right, to be worried. And um, it just, this reminds me of the moments where those really scared ones would finally like decide to get into the water. And they'd see the other kids having fun and, and they would finally like take the invitation to come on in and, and just hold on to the wall. That's all, just take a step, just hold on to the wall. And then when they were ready, they would let me take them out and like put my hands under their head and pull them over the top of the water, right? And at first they would like protect themselves, right? So that looks like in your body, how do you, what do you do when you need to protect yourself? Like you go like this, right? It's hard to float like that, it's hard to swim. And so I'd gradually remind them, hey, did you know you have floaties in you? Like you have inside floaties, and, and any time you can refill them. So let's take a breath. Try it now. Fill your inner floaties with me, okay? And over time, they'd learn to relax in the water. 
and I could hold their head and, and pull them around, and they could start feeling the relationship between their body and the water and their inner floaties. <laughs> and they would relax, and pretty soon I could, every once in a while, take my hands away. And eventually, they were doing it. And eventually, they could learn to swim. Our journeys come alive on our own time. They're never forced. It's about trust. I mean, you are free to not agree with any of this that I am saying right now, or any of the voices in this book. You're freed and empowered by life itself, I think by this book, to wrestle and come to know for your own self the nature of this moving force of life that's in you and around you and what it means to have death and life set before you and to choose life. It begins inside us. It calls you to follow your own heart, to be your full self, but not by yourself. The kids in the swimming class, they would see each other, right? They'd see that other kid who was kind of scared go out and have a positive experience and survive and come back to that wall, right? We need that. We benefit from the experience and strength and hope that other people can share with us. Hope is realized together realized. That's why we're fabric. We need each other to help see it, to realize hope, and also to be it, to like make it real. How do we know it otherwise? After Jesus died, that question loomed for the disciples. Was hope with us? Was God with us and now gone? It sure felt like it. But could these bones live even now? In the story, Jesus appears to some of them after his death, it says. And he had a message for them. Could these bones live even now? Yes. This is only the beginning. The message Jesus shared sounded like this. Peace be with you. As God has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive my life. Receive this wild and big and powerful and beautiful, wondrous spirit that has been trying to be given to us the whole time. They had to be thinking about the dry bones. They were the dry bones. And now they were being breathed into, and they were being asked and invited to breathe it back out. Maybe that's why the next words are, if you forgive the sins of any. Right away, he says this. So interesting. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What? Does this spirit have something to do with what I hold on to? tightly and what I let go of, who I hold on to, who I let go of, and how that all works. We're able to forgive, and a powerful force moves through us. Or does a powerful force move through us and allow us to be able to let go, to forgive? The winds, they come and they go. We don't know. What if God was not with people then, 
and now is gone, what if the spirit has always been as close as that next breath? As close as the wind, the breeze, as close as each step or plunge into the water? Do not be afraid, choose life. We might have given up on God, but God does not seem to ever give up on life through us and in us. God is relentless in being known for who God really is. What if we lived as if that was true? What if we expected the dry bones around us and in our lives to live? What if we spoke the future, spoke a new beginning with the words that we think and that we say and that we repeat? So let's take a breath and Feel that spirit that is that close. So who, who are you in these stories? Are you the kid on the side of the pool, unsure, like Nicodemus? Are you the dry bones? Are you afraid? That's not a flaw. That's how it works. Maybe you are the swimming teacher sometimes, the encourager. Maybe you're meeting people where they are with, when they've forgotten, when they feel afraid, and reminding them what they are made for, what they have in them, what they're a part of. Never forcing, but helping them Feel this nudge, feel this love that can change us from the inside out and tells us it's okay to feel afraid because you don't really see how this could be possible. You don't know the way through this hard thing. You don't know if there's a future or a hope. But you can see maybe there is a step one step, one step at a time. Maybe you can speak to that hopeless place, a word. I can and I will. We can and we will. We are not alone. There is time. It's not too late. We will realize hope together. We speak the future. We see one next step, and we can take it. May it be so for all of us today, and tomorrow, and the next day. Thanks for listening. We hope these conversations are helpful and connective. You can find out more about Fabric at fabricmpls.com. There you can find notes from previous conversations and other resources for deepening your relationships with the threads of yourself, others, and that third strand we often call God. You can also find ways of connecting to a group, whether you're in the Twin Cities or not. You can join in supporting this community financially too. It's through the generous giving of people like you that Fabric is sustained. Again, that's fabricmpls.com. Thanks for being Fabric in your unique